This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. This is God's word. We're starting a new series, and uh, we're calling it Dining with the King, because many narratives in the Bible uh, happen in the context of a meal. Many narratives take place in the Bible throughout the Old and New Testaments in the context of a meal. These ancient meals, they were intimate, they were relational, they were incredibly deep. And as we look at these texts, we're going to learn something very special about God in each of these texts. Now, it's obvious that um, these meals teach us that God wants intimacy with his people. He wants to be able to relate with his people. He wants to be able to go deep into the lives of his people. And so we see that the Bible is not really this collection of these disparate stories that kind of come together. It's not, that's not what it is, but it's really one story. And uh, in this one story, as we connect with the hope and the truths that come out of this story, we're going to be able to piece it together. We're going to encounter the whole of God and who he is uh, in the Bible. And this week, we're going to look at the life of Abraham. So I've got to give you a little bit of context here. Abraham, who was he? Abraham was called out of his context, his life context, in an ancient society. He was called out of, of his home. He was called out of his social context, his economical, his financial context. He was called out of his cultural context, his career context, and uh, actually even his own religious context. He was called out of all these things and as he was being led by God in this uncertain, unknown place, he, he lived a remarkable life, a very, very big life, because he lived on the basis of a call. God appeared to him and promised him one day, a son that was, that's born by you, a descendant of yours, 
is going to redeem everything that's broken in the world. One of his descendants will do that, redeem everything that's broken. And so for 25 years, he's living on the basis of this call. He's living in accordance with this promise of God, and it changed him. God is intimate with him. This promise is intimate with him. And because, really, God has tied himself down, God has placed his own identity, his own character, his own life in fulfilling this promise Abraham trusted. But now he's 100 years old. And Sarah is almost 90 years old. He's around 90. She's around 90. And they've got no sons. They've got no children. And in this text, we see Abraham is by the entrance of his tent, and it's hot in the desert, and these three men come and visit him. And you know, you know before, God, when God visited him, it was a smoking fire pot, a blazing torch that came, but this time around, um, it's these visitors, and he provides them with a meal. And that's the context of this narrative that we're going to look at today. There are three things about this visit that we'll see. One, the reason for this visit. Two, the reason why Sarah laughs. And three, the reason why we have hope. The reason for the visit, the reason why Sarah laughs, and the reason why we have hope. One, first, the reason for this visit. In this passage, Abraham, again, he's by this tent, and these three men, they come and they visit him. And in verse 2, it says that he bows low to them. And then we see in verses 3 to 5, he offers them water, he, an opportunity to freshen up, clean themselves up, because they're walking in the desert, and they're messy, and they're dirty, and they're sweaty. And he asks them to sit under the tree and rest there, and he offers them a meal. And three times we see him using the, the word hurry. The word hurry is referenced in verses 3 to 5, verses 2, verse 6 and 7, sorry. And, and four times we see the word fetch. He calls them to fetch things, verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 8. Why does he do this? He's hurrying. You see this kind of urgency. He's hurrying. He's fetching food, fetching things, getting them together. The reason why we see this is in a culture, in that culture, this desert Bedouin culture of the day, hospitality to strangers was, was very, very important. There was no indication that Abraham knew these people before. There's no indication that he ever met them before in his life. They're strangers virtually. And it wasn't until verse 10, actually, when one of them starts to speak and repeats this promise that God made to Abraham all the way back. And that's when he realizes this must have been the Lord. Abraham must have realized that this person that he's speaking must be the Lord. Because the only person who ever knew the promise is the person who made it. They kept it virtually a secret. See, Abraham knew. Abraham trusted Abraham was there, actually, when God made this promise to him. He saw the blazing torch. He saw the smoking fire pot and the blaze that went through these two sets of pieces that were the halves of animals that Abraham placed along the side of a road. He saw the blazing fire torch go through. He was there. He heard the promise. It was audible. It was visible. He experienced God there. But God never appeared to Sarah. God never came to Sarah. 25 years have gone by. They're resting on this promise. And now, you notice when he finally comes to Sarah, the approach that God has this time around very, very different than the approach he made with Abraham. For example, God visits Abraham only a couple times in 25 years, only a few times in 25 years. But in one year's time span, God approaches Sarah twice. He visits Abraham at sunset. 
in the darkness. But it's Sarah. But Sarah, he visits her at high noon in the heat, daytime. He visits Abraham through a smoking fire pot, a blaze, a torch. But he meets Sarah on foot in person. To Abraham, God comes with a contract. If you know anything about Genesis chapter 15, he says you take these animals, split them in half, put them on the side of a road, and God in his blazing fire torch presence, he blazes through. That's how contracts were made back then. You walk through these halves of animals because a contract was life-binding, and you're saying, if I don't abide by this contract, may I be split in two. But with Sarah... He comes as a guest in her home, in person. Why the two approaches? You see, Abraham was a businessman. Abraham is a patriarch. Abraham understood and is moved in a sense. If you think about, for those of you uh, women who have husbands, right, you understand business is always on their minds. And so business language, contractual language, the nature of contracts, always on their heart, always on their minds. But Sarah is an old barren woman. And so contracts don't move her. Contracts don't get her. I mean, this is her soul, right? What does this tell you about God? Sometimes God will come in a fire. God will come blazing. God will come in his glory. Other times he comes on foot. He comes weary. He comes gentle. Sometimes he comes for businessmen, the head of the house, the patriarch, the highest person on the social ladder. Other times, he's going to come for the barren woman, the lowest person on the social ladder. In verse 9, you know, the men ask, where is your wife Sarah? You know, they didn't ask because they didn't know. They wanted Sarah's attention because they were coming for her. Verse 10, she's eavesdropping. She's listening in this conversation. They ask, where is Sarah? She's listening in. Sarah's this old woman, she's about 90 years old, versus, you know, 11 to 12. When she hears this news, she starts to laugh to herself. She's virtually, she laughs, she utters a laugh. She says, you know, after I'm worn out, after Abraham's old, will I now have this pleasure? She's not talking about the pleasure of having children and raising children. The word pleasure here, the, the root of this word is the Hebrew word edna, which is a derivative of the word in Eden. Will I have this Edna? What he's really saying is, uh, derivative of the word Eden, how are they in Eden? How is Adam and Eve in Eden? They were naked. Sarah's reference, and she's talking about sexual pleasure. She says, I'm so old now. I'm too old. I'm too old to be having sex anymore. Abraham probably hasn't touched her in years, she's saying. Abraham, in a sense, is probably disappointed in just where they are as a family. Decades have, decades have passed. They have no children. The marriage has probably lacked intimacy for years. A lot has happened during this time. And Sarah is now, she's too old. She's way past the age where physical beauty uh, is, is even relevant in her marriage. And she's barren in a culture that exalts fertility. She's barren in a culture that exalts beauty. And so she doesn't even come out of the tent. She actually stays in the tent. She just eavesdrops. She's forgotten. She's been left alone. She's barren. And, and, you know, it's not just about the barrenness of her children. She, she feels she herself has been barren. She's been left alone. She's been forgotten. And that's why God comes to her in person. God travels all the way through a desert, braves the heat, seeks her out, and speaks to her. That's what happens. From this truth, you're going to see three things here. 
within this subpoint. You know, one, God is drawn to the outcast. God is drawn to the marginalized. Abraham got the fire. Abraham was a patriarch. Abraham was a businessman. Abraham's strong. In a sense, Abraham is in. He's in. But the, you know, the whole point of being an outcast, you don't have a way in. You can't get in. You can't get in on your own, certainly. Sarah didn't even come out of the tent because she wasn't in, but God sought her. God sought her and spoke to her, which means Sarah. He's saying, Sarah, you're in. Sarah, you have a place. And if Sarah, who has no social standing in her life, in her culture, in her context, Sarah, who's barren, Sarah, who's old, Sarah, who's beyond beauty, if she has a place with God, that means anyone can have a place with God. Anybody can have a place with God. In fact, you know, it's when Sarah has nothing left to be able to bring to the table, that's when God literally brings her to the table. You don't connect with God because you have talent. You don't connect with God because you have skills or because you have money. You know, look at Sarah. She's not, she has no skills here. She has no money here. She has no currency, no social currency to bring to the table, no social capital to bring to the table. She's not able. It's all by grace. The second thing we see here is why did God seek, seek Sarah? And it's because of this. Abraham, he had a real experience with God. Like I said before, he saw, he went through the process of splitting the animals in half and laying them in their halves by the side of the road. He saw the flaming uh, torch, the smoking fire pot, the blaze go through. He heard the words of God. It was soulful to him because he experienced it there. He saw it with his eyes. He saw it happen. But Sarah, Sarah never experienced God on her own. She needed an experience of her own. Now, I'm sure a lot of people, they hear um, uh, this message of promise many times. You know, um, I'm sure Sarah, in many sense, have heard the message uh, of God many times in her life. She probably heard it from Abraham, for that matter, but, but Abraham experienced it, and that experience that Abraham was not, that, ha- that he had was not her experience. It wasn't real to her in, her in herself. She needed her own experience. What that means is it's not enough for you to just take on the experience that somebody else had of their faith in Christ. It's not enough for you to come and to be able to hear somebody, to live vicariously through the experience of somebody else. It's not enough for you to sit there and read somebody else's book and to see their experience of God and just be able to take it in cognitively and say, yeah, that's my experience. You can't do that. You have to have your own experience. Somebody's teaching, you say to yourself, yeah, I've heard this before, I know this, I heard this before. You know what that means? What you're saying is what was personal to this person is not personal to me. That's what you're really saying. It has to be personal. You can't rely on someone else's experience. God's grace has to become personal to you. What that means is you need your own tent. You need this own, your own place where you can eavesdrop so that the words that you take in become personal. That's what you need. How do you do that? That's what prayer is. That's what God's word is. That's what worship is. That's why we have community groups. These are all opportunities for you to be able to eavesdrop. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have different and various fellowships in your context. It's a context. It's a place that's set up for you to be able to eavesdrop and hear God, listen to God. The third thing it means is that sometimes God comes in a fire, these acute moments, but other times he comes in peace, in intimacy, in comfort. Now, of course, what that means is that the truths that come out of both experiences have to be the same. 
They are the same. There's this core foundational belief that we all hold to in our Christian experience. You believe you're a sinner. You believe you're saved by grace alone, by the grace of God alone, through Jesus Christ alone. But sometimes we come to God because we're overwhelmed by our fear. We're overwhelmed by guilt, overwhelmed by shame. Other times, you're overwhelmed by the peace of God, by the comfort of God. And as we come, then we hear and we learn of these same truths that draw us into Christ. But the one thing you do not do is you never impose your experience of salvation on someone else. You never do that. You never say, everybody has to come this way because I experienced God this way. Those are three great lessons we learned from that first point. Now, the second thing, the second point is this. We learn about Sarah's laugh, the reason for Sarah's laughter. You see, children are what women contributed to society in their day. You had to have children. Children were the currency of a woman. It was the way a woman was held up as a hero because that's how a nation grew. That's how sons in particular, that's how nations grew. That's how armies grew. It was an agrarian culture, so to have sons is to have lots of capital because you could work your land. The more sons you have, the more work you can accomplish. There were no 401ks back then. There were no banking systems back then. So sons, children were the worth. Children were the blessing. Children were the means to, your, to growing up in your social status and your reputation. But Sarah is 90 years old. Sarah is 90 and she's childless. She's still seeking to have children. She's still clinging to the hope that at the age of 90 she can have children. She's desperate for children. At one point, she actually had Abraham sleep with her maidservant Hagar It was a failed plan. It was a flawed plan. It left things distrustful. It left things bitter. And now she's old and she's bitter and she's cynical and she's empty. In a culture that values beauty, she's old. In a country that values fertility, she's got no children. And so she's no longer desirable and she knows it. Verse 12, she uses this phrase. She says, after I'm worn out, she says, And when she says that, she's not saying, after I'm worn out, in a sense, oh, I'm just tired now. I'm 90 years old and I'm tired. That's actually not what she's saying because, you know, because I'm old. What she's saying is the word, the word worn, the phrase worn out means after I've been used up. It's the language of clothing that's been worn over and over and over. It's been worn down and basically broken through. She's saying, you know, I I feel worthless. She's hating herself. She's loathing herself. She's given up on herself. Look at the love of God here. Look at the love of God. He gives her exactly what she needs. He repeats the promise as God to her. Verse 14, you see that. Look at the gentleness of God. She's scoffing. She's laughing at him. And and he's so gentle to her. You know, he, he says, why are you laughing? He's counseling Sarah. He wants her to know how she feels. He wants, her, he wants her to know what she's struggling with. He wants to challenge her. He's counseling her because he knows she's listening, and he wants her to know why. He wants her to experience. Why does she laugh? Uh, Rainer Maria Rilke is this 19th century existentialist philosopher and writer. He's a, he's a tremendous writer of short stories. Uh, one of my favorite existential writers, uh, and a poet, actually. And he wrote this story, this short story, very short story, called The Gym Class. 
And uh, that, that story really got me. Um, the background of the, is this military school, and you have these children who are in this boarding school, this military program, and it's pre-World War I, so they're gearing up really to fight in this great war. So you have these children, very, very young children, who are just kind of, they're separated from their family, separated from their parents, and they're just being punished, and it's this harsh treatment to really harden them at a very, very young age to prepare them for war. And, you know, I can't tell you the whole story. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a short story, but it's still a long story. And what happens is at the end, the, the main character of the story, um, to get away, to break free of all this, kills himself in a very tragic way. And now uh, you see the hardness and the stoicism of the, the board members of the school. They kind of clear, they just kind of shirk it off. And they, they're, they're even harsher to these children. And the children, they don't, they're not left with an outlet. They can't deal with it. They don't know how to, how to express themselves because they're not taught to express themselves. They're taught to be hard. They're taught to be tough, right? So they're kind of to themselves here, and they're walking away from this horror, this tragedy that they all witnessed in 19th century Austria, Bohemia, with no outlet, taught to be disciplined as the bell rings and as these children are left by themselves to deal with things, one of the child, one of the children just starts laughing uncontrollably. And that's how the story ends. Just starts laughing. Why did Sarah laugh? Because Rilke understood the meaning of laughter. There are two kinds of laughter. There's a very hearty, soulful laughter that happens because you're blessed. And then there's this type of laughter that happens when you're angry. And when you're nervous and you're bitter and you're confused. There's this hearty laughter that represents hope and blessing. And then there's this soulful anger, anger, uh, soulful laughter that happens because you're angry and you're bitter. Sarah laughs because there's no outlet. 25 years of dying hope. There's no horizon for her. She's trapped in, in this disbelief. And, and you know, she's, she hears these words about her having a son at the age of 90, and she doesn't believe, and, and she's bitter, and she's scoffing, and she's filled with hate, self-hate. And God says, you will have a son. And so she scoffs. She kind of just laughs. We live in a time where everybody um, who, everybody says, if you experience something, Anything that you experience has to have an explanation because if you can't explain it, then it can't be real. That's the time that we live in. Everything has to be empirical. Everything has to be understandable. Everything has to be virtually scientific in a sense. So we have a generation of people, our generation, the generation after us, they're left without wonder. It's a very skeptical generation in life. But children, children, they always have wonder. They're filled with wonder. We tend to kill the wonder. The people who tend to kill the wonder most, parents, politicians, pastors. Three Ps, right? Parents, politicians, and pastors. They want to tell you what's wrong with the world and who's to blame for it. Children have filled with wonder. They, but, you know, our scientists and our scholars, our politicians, our parents, our pastors, they just want to explain it. They want to be able to explain things to you or they want to be the first to be able to tell you what's wrong with it. What's wrong with your thinking, if anything? God asks in verse 14, here's Sarah, quintessential picture of modern America today. 
bitter, scoffing, cynical. If, it can't, if I don't see it, if I, if I experience something, and if it can't be explained, then it cannot be real. God asks her, can anything be too wonderful for the Lord? Is there anything that's impossible for the Lord? That's the language that he's using there. Can anything be too great, too impossible for the Lord? And it's at this moment that Sarah starts to realize who she's talking to. In verse 15, it says she was afraid. And so she says, I didn't laugh. Look at the patience of God. Look at the grace of God. He could have easily said, you know, I traveled all the way here to give you some hope. And what do you do? Behind my back, you scoff at me. He could have easily said that, called her out on her insolence, but he doesn't tear her down. She's already torn. She knows it. She's already worn through, she says. He doesn't sit there and say, here's what's wrong with your thinking, Sarah. Let me tell you what's wrong with your, with your understanding of things, your understanding, your worldview. You have such a primitive mindset here. That's not what he says. He has no judgment, no anger. He says, no, you laughed. You laughed at me. I heard it. But if you think about it, the promise came before the laugh, right? It's not like he waited to see the response. And based on her response, now, I like, I like you, Sarah. I'm going to promise that you're going to have a son. That's not what he says. First, he makes the promise. Then she scoffs at him. And then he makes the promise again, right? He resumes. In fact, first, he makes the promise Then she lies and says, I didn't laugh. And yet the promise still holds, right? That's amazing grace. What does this tell you? That means that you are called. You can approach God in doubt. You have doubts, God's the one you go to. You angry, God is the one you go to. He He says, there's no journey I will not make to hear you. There's no journey I will not make to give you hope. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, there's no desert, there's no wilderness, there's no heat that I will not traverse to come to you. There's a psalm, Psalm Psalm 88. It's a very disturbing, for a lot of pastors, Psalm 88, it's difficult to make heads or tails of it, but I'm going to make heads or tails of it for you. Okay, Psalm 88. You start in Psalm, it's a pretty long psalm. If you read it through, um, most psalms, uh, a lot of psalms, it starts with some sort of lament, ends with some sort of hope. Okay, it's like, oh, I'm suffering, I'm suffering but there is God and he is my fortress forever, right? You always see that in Psalms, right? I'm a, you know, it kind of, kind of reminds you of some of the language that's used in Psalms. But Psalm 88, it's just, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. You left me, you hate me, you've destroyed me. And then it ends. That's pretty much how it ends. That's Psalm 88. Why is it in the Bible? You ever wonder why a Psalm like that is in the Bible? It teaches us, it's amazing because this person whose Psalms are prayers, This person is saying, I've been destroyed by God. God is just punishing me. He's killing me. Bad theology sometimes. Loss of hope. You know, in that moment, just completely hopeless. But who's he praying to? He's praying to God. The psalmist is praying to the Father. That means you can come to him with your anger. You can come to him a lot. Here's Sarah. I'm lying, but she's talking to God. We do that all the time. We lie to ourselves. We lie to other people about who we are. We come to God presenting ourselves in certain ways. We come to him with our pride. We come to him with anger and cynicism. And God says, you are welcome to come. Come to me. You tired? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Come to me. Talk to me. 
Sarah wasn't looking for God. Sarah wasn't acknowledging God. Sarah wasn't thanking God. Sarah wasn't seeking God. Sarah wasn't repentant to God. Sarah wasn't even looking to speak to God. In fact, when, he, when she was speaking to God, she wasn't even sincere with God. And yet, God is gentle. God is humble. God is faithful. He sees the brokenness. He sees the hurt. He makes a way for her. He makes a way for us. There's no other faith like this. No other God can do this. No other God would do this. A God who wants us to be honest about our bitterness, honest about our pain. In time, Sarah actually bears a son. God is faithful to his promise. In Genesis chapter 21, God delivers a son for Sarah, and she says, God has brought me laughter. She's looking back to the time when she scoffed at God. She's looking, and she's, she's looking at her joy today. She says, God has brought me laughter. The name Isaac means son of laughter. Before, she laughed because uh, this couldn't be true. This can't be true. Now she's laughing because, wow, this is too good to be true. This is amazing, too good to be true. Her heart has been renewed. Her joy has returned. The cynicism is gone. The bitterness is gone. The self-hate is gone. In Genesis chapter 21, she actually says, God has brought me laughter, and now everyone who hears will laugh. The actual phrase that she uses, if you look at the language, uh, the grammar there in that text, she says, everyone who hears will laugh at me. That's what she says. But she's saying it with joy. She's looking at herself, and she says, look at myself. I'm holding this baby. I'm 90 years old. I'm nursing a baby. That's funny, and it's disgusting, and it's weird, and it's funny. That's what she's saying. And everyone who hears about the story is going to laugh with me, and they're going to laugh at me. That's what they're going to say. It's funny because God really saw me. That's why I'm laughing. You can laugh at me. God came to me. God, I, I, I realize now she discovered how much she was loved by God. There's nothing too wonderful for God, nothing impossible for God. Before she's questioning her worth, questioning who she is, it took 25 years in this struggle, in this journey for Sarah to come and recognize that her true worth is not in her beauty, not in her youthfulness, not in her, her figure, not in, even in her children. She found her worth. She was shaped. She was transformed by God's word to her. The son that would be born, that will redeem the world, had renewed her. And uh, that message had renewed Sarah, and that's the same message that could renew us even more. Which brings us to our last, ho- last uh, point. What's the reason for our hope? We talked about the reason for the visit, the reason why Sarah laughed, right? She's questioning her worth, really. And now she gets to really laugh because, she, because God is present and God had delivered the son that would redeem her and redeem the world through her, in a sense. What's the reason for our hope? First, I want to share with you the trap. Here's the trap in this. People often take this text and they say, this is why you have to pray to God and say, we expect great things from you, God. You ever pray that prayer? You ever hear people who tell you, you know, you got to pray like that? Pray with expectation. You got to pray with anticipation. You got to say, God, we expect grand things from you. We expect the impossible from you. That is incredibly flawed because look at Sarah. Did she expect grand things from God during this time? Was she praying and saying, I expect great things to happen here? No. Her joy did not come because she expected great things from God here. She didn't expect anything from God, she was scoffing at God. 
She was laughing at God. Sarah's joy was renewed when she beheld the son of promise. That's how she was renewed. That's how we'll be renewed when we behold our son of promise. You see, Sarah, she only saw part of the story. It's amazing because she saw part of the story. She was able to plug into that part of the story. We can see the whole story. What's the whole story? Throughout the Bible, there's this concept of barrenness. It's throughout the Bible because barrenness, societally being barren meant you were really rejected. You were unworthy. You were unacceptable. Uh, You were cursed in a sense. That was Sarah's culture. But in the Bible, anytime you see barrenness, it was actually a clue to God's delight in you. God always pursues the younger. He always pursues the weaker. He always pursues the ugly. He always pursues the barren. Always pursues the barren. So if there's a person here sitting in this congregation today saying, you know, I'm rejected, I've been abandoned by my family or abandoned by my parents, you know, I've, I've been rejected by friends all the time, I'm just an empty person right now, you know, this, look at this, look at this text. Let me set the stage for you. God pursues Jacob over Esau, the younger. God pursues David over uh, his older brothers because he's the youngest, really the forgotten son, and he has a heart for the barren. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. She eventually gives birth to Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. But then uh, she gave birth to Jacob, who became the son of promise. Through him, the world would be redeemed. Uh, Isaac married two women. Um, In his sinfulness, he married Leah and uh, Rachel. Uh, Rachel was beautiful, but she was barren. (laughs) She had no children. But then later on, Rachel gives birth to Joseph, to Benjamin. You go all the way, follow that lineage, all the way you get to 1 Samuel, and uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah, was barren. She's praying, she's barren. She gives birth to Samuel. He becomes the last great judge over Israel. You go all the way into the New Testament, and we're crossing over now into the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, you have Elizabeth, the wife of a priest. She's barren. She, gives, she finally gives birth to John. John becomes John the Baptist. Elizabeth had a cousin. Her cousin's name was Mary. Mary has no children. In fact, Mary's not even married. An angel comes to Mary and says, you will give birth to a child. Mary says, how can this be? The phrase that she's using is, this is impossible. The angel responds in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, he says, nothing is impossible with God. Hundreds of years later, says, this angel says virtually the same thing that God is saying to Sarah in this passage that we've read. Nothing's impossible with God. And he virtually says the same thing to Mary, you will be with child. And the reason why is because Jesus is the greater Isaac. Jesus is the ultimate son of promise. Sarah's son was a shadow, a pointer to the ultimate son of promise. But Jesus is the ultimate son of promise who'd come into the world to redeem the world of its brokenness. On the cross, Jesus suffers Jesus dies to give us a lasting hope. 
We have to behold this son. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've been abandoned. I'm the one that's been left alone. I'm the one that's been rejected. I've been rejected by men. I've been rejected by my friends. I've been worn through, he says. Jesus is suffering the ultimate loss, the ultimate bitterness. He's on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm suffering the ultimate desert, the ultimate thirst, the ultimate joylessness. The wrath of God has been poured out on me. The heat of God is on me. The anger of God is on me. The storm of God is on me, and I'm barren. I have no promise God is absent from me. That's what he's saying here. Why does he do that? Jesus gave up the intimacy with the Father so we could have intimacy with the Father. Jesus gave up the joy of being in the Father so that we can receive the joy of being present with the Father. Jesus drank the bitterness, the bitterness of life, the brokenness of life, all the way to the end. The hymnist writes, to the dregs, to the dregs, to the core, suck the marrow out of the bitterness so that we can have the fullest of joy without even a touch of bitterness at our end. And do you know, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, the writer says that he did it for the joy. He did it for the joy set before him. That means even down to the end, Sarah looks at everything and says, oh, she scoffs because she feels like she's been abandoned. Jesus suffers. You know, God was still really present with Sarah. Jesus suffers the abandonment of God. And yet to the end, still had joy. He did it for the joy. It was his joy to know that we would have God's presence. It was his joy to know that we would have his peace. It was his joy to give up the promise, to give up the rights of sonship that we would be sons, that we would have the promise of sons. There's your self-worth. There's your sense of worth. If you put it another way, on the cross, God himself lost his son. God became barren when he lost his own son. Why? So that we could be his children. That's the gospel. The deeper that truth goes into your life, it's going to give you joy. When the gospel is not the center of your life, several things are going to happen. You're going to laugh. But the only laugh that you can utter, you're going to laugh at other people because it's going to be a bitter laughter. You're going to always look around for people that you can laugh at. And that's the heart of gossip. Anytime you're gossiping, you know what you're doing? Even if it's the most innocent of gossips, you know what you're doing? You're laughing. You know why? Because that shows you're bitter. You're angry. You're cynical. And you're empty. That's what it shows. You can, you can laugh at another person's bitterness or emptiness, but in the end of the day, you're the one that's still sucking from those dregs. That's what you're doing. But when the gospel goes deeper, it creates a wonder. Look at Sarah. At the end, she has a child. She says, me? Me? Look at me. I'm 90. I'm old. I'm worn through. I don't deserve any of this. And yet she can laugh now. She can laugh at herself. She says, everyone's going to laugh at me. Because they will know, but I know. The reason why she laughs is because she knows. Even though the world laughs at me, thousands of years from now, the world will still laugh. And yet, I can laugh. Because I know how, I can laugh at myself because I know how little I trusted God. I only saw two steps in front of me. and All I saw was the desert. All I saw was the dry land, the emptiness. 
I, I, I was skeptical of God. I was struggling with all these things. And yet God met me in the desert to make sure that I understood the promise. Do you understand the promise? Do you get the promise? Sometimes, you know, we struggle with our guilt and uh, we're able to see our sin, we see our failure. And, you know, but when you, when you understand the presence of God, when you have the presence of God, that guilt, that sin, that failure, it can't kill you. It can't devastate you. You can name it. You can remember, you know, Sarah names her son Isaac. It's a reminder of the transformation of her laughter. You can name these things as, a trans, as your transformation, the thing that has shaped you. Several things that this does. One, um, it can rebuild your self-image because you know no matter how many people laugh at me, I don't have to scoff. I've been transformed. Number two, you can trust in God's wisdom even when or especially when your prayers are being answered. Uh, You know that nothing is impossible with God. And if God is powerful enough to answer your prayers, surely he's wise enough. He could possibly be wise enough to know what's best for you. If he's possible enough, if he's powerful enough to be able to answer what you want, he's probably wise enough to know when to give it to you. So you can't go to God just for things. You have to go to God for God. You have to go to God to get more of God. You get that? Three, lastly, or I guess thirdly, uh, you can look at people around you and, you know, they're working hard to live up to standards of beauty and fertility and and wealth and success and, and marriage and children, and you can say, you know what, these things, whether I have them or they not, I don't have them. They are no longer the source of my worth. I don't need to keep driving for this or keep driving for this. You know, I don't have to keep driving for all these things to show that I made it because God came to me. That's the one thing you couldn't earn on your own and the one thing that you need and God provided. And lastly, if you really believe that, if you really trust that, to the degree that you believe and trust that, you can look to people then who are weak. You can look to people who are poor. You can look to people who have been abandoned and you can give them joy. You can bring them joy. That's the reason why we're here in the city. If we ever plant a church anywhere else, we have a vision here in our church to plant 15 churches in 15 years. In order to do that, as a part of this whole vision and plan, we have to have churches that are planting other churches so that over the course of 15 years, you know, we continue to grow. But the only reason why we're going to plant the next one is because we've been shaped by the gospel. The only reason why you put any dollar amount, you know, in the offering basket, the only way you're going to be able to do that with joy and not because you feel like you have to is because you've been shaped by the gospel. Are you? Do you get it? My prayer is that you do. Because if you do, I mean, if you have just a community of people that live out of that trust, oh, it's going to shape the community outside of it. Will you pray with me? Let's pray.